Welcome to Downstage Center, a production of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We're joined today by the man who gave us more than a couple shows with which you may be familiar. Shows like Mac and Mabel, Milk and Honey, La Caja Fall, Mame, and, oh yes, Hello, Dolly. <laughs> Jerry Herman. Welcome, Jerry. Don't forget Hello, Dolly. <laughs> How could we forget Hello, Dolly? <laughs> it's nice to be here, guys. <laughs> Welcome. Jerry is with us today. We're seated at a how do you describe the piano? A, a well-worn but wonderful old Steinway. I'm told it was Errol Garner's own Steinway at one point. Wow. Yeah, it's wonderful. Jerry, mm. thanks for joining us today. We'd like to talk to you about a lot of things, and it's like, where do we start? I think, you know, we could start at the very beginning, but I'd rather not. I'd rather start with the present. You have two shows up and running now, one that just opened at good speed, a revival of Mac and Mabel, and another show that is about to go into previews any day now, uh, La Cage Fall. It's been the wildest fall season of my life because uh-huh. I've been shuttling back and forth between East Haddam, Connecticut, working on Mac and Mabel, and uh, Manhattan, where I'm in rehearsal with uh, a wonderful new lacage, wonderful cast, wonderful new directors and choreographers. Well, let's let's start with Mac and Mabel because for many people, and, and in that that's up and running now, it's it's possibly one of the shows people are less familiar with. Um, oh, definitely. It's, yet it's a show that any time uh, I've mentioned it, said that I was going up to see it at good speed, commented that you were coming in to talk with us today, you mentioned that show, people go, God, it's a fantastic score. Gosh, I, I, I would love to see that. And it is a show that over the years you've revisited a number of times in a number of ways. The original production did not have a long run, despite no. uh, some some solid reviews and a tremendous cast. What do you think was the challenge for audiences, for the public back the, then? The challenge was making the story of Max Sennett and his great discovery, Mabel Norman, palatable and interesting to uh, to an audience. And it's taken almost uh, 30 years of fiddling with it and ha- having the good fortune of Mike Stewart's sister, Francine Pascal, having joined us to redo the book. And I think she's done a superb job because the book now carries the story along with with speed and with good humor and the songs seem to just blossom out of it instead of uh, just being individual songs that you know that that work on their own it certainly wasn't the, the true story was not a happy story particularly the story of of Senate and Mabel Normand overall was that a challenge in terms of obviously originally and and how much of you, as you've worked on the show, have you diverged from the truth more in order to make the show cohere? Well, we never intended this to be a true piece of history. We wanted to do an entertainment about two people who had a very stormy romance and who happened to be well-known characters. The, the first time around, our director, Gower Champion, 
wanted it to have a tragic ending. He was in that mode of his career. And so he added her death, Mabel's death, when that was not real at all. She married another man, Luke Cody Jr., after her relationship with Max Sennett, and had seven wonderful years with him and then died of tuberculosis or whatever whatever it was. And our ending, uh, talking about her death, was really a theatrical device. Uh, 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 device, device yeah, yeah. exactly. It's probably much more dramatic to end it that way than the way it really happened. And it didn't work for the audience. Mm. They hated hearing that their beloved, because they f- have fallen in love with Mabel by the, by mm. the end of the second act, that she suddenly died, and she didn't suddenly die. <laughs> so he so it was that, even darker than, than so reality. So what, what we have now, which is actually true, is his helping her at a terrible low period in her life when she really needed someone to pick her up and get her career back on track. And he does a film with her that he knows because of the scandal she's just been through will not be shown by the exhibitors and he loses his fortune and that's the way that that man who doesn't know how to say I love you finally says it in a much bigger and much grander way. I think we should, for the purposes of our audience, some of whom are maybe a bit too young to remember Max Sennett and Mabel Norman, he was a famed Hollywood producer back in the early part of the 20th century. And he she actually was discovered star. the bathing beauties and the Keystone Cops and Pies in the Face, and he worked with Chaplin, and he was just a great silent movie director. In the days before uh, talkies, before yeah, yeah. modern Yeah, talkies movies. were... Yeah. Not his thing. And theirs was a great love story. And he discovered this girl, this young girl, and turned her into everybody's darling. Mabel Norman became an enormous star. And their story is what Mac and Mabel was really about. It's an interesting love story that has a song in it, by the way, that was one of the toughest things I ever had to write. Because this is a man who doesn't know how to say I love you. And we can we can see that he's falling in love with this girl, but doesn't know how to express it. And I had to write a song at this point in the in the play. And, and you I can't, so often write of optimism and openness oh, yes. and And this was just the opposite. This is an anti love song. And it's become one of my favorite songs that I've ever written. He sings I won't send roses or hold the door. I won't remember which dress you wore. My heart is too much in control. The lack of romance in my soul will turn you gray, kid. So stay away, kid. In me, you'll find things like guts and nerve, but not the kind things that you deserve. 
And so, while there's a fighting chance, just turn and go. I won't send roses and roses suit you. So, and on. But it became the heart of Mac and Mabel because it's real. That's what it's really about. And of course, Mabel answers that, and and just sings. So who needs roses, or stuff like that, and and uh, sings about the fact that who needs roses that didn't come from him, and in those two uh, uh, choruses of this song, you learn more about their romance than you would in six pages of dialogue, and so it's a song I'm very now, fond. Now, you said it was a very hard song for you to, to write. In, in, in what sense? Getting the, the, the idea for the it's song? It's an or? anti-love song. I usually write, it only takes a moment for your eyes to meet and then about love happening instantly. Mm-hmm. This is the opposite. This is a man who can't say it. And so... Instead of that, he's warning her. How do you work that out working with a librettist? You worked with Michael Stewart a number of times. At that point, was that something that was in the book that you translated into music or was that something that you brought into it and it, as you say, cut out six pages of dialogue? I brought this song into it because there was a a moment in Act One where he had to sing – something vaguely romantic to this girl but but couldn't say uh, I love you or uh, 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 it only takes a moment. He couldn't s- sing anything like that. And it really, it really was a very tough song to find the key to. Once I found the idea of I won't send roses or hold the door. I won't forget my shoulder when you're in need. Forgetting birthdays is guaranteed. Once I found those ideas, it became a joy to write. And at that point, did you know who, not just on that song, but as you were working on the show, as it developed, did you know who you were writing for? I mean, was was Preston an idea? I never know who I'm writing for, and it's much better for me because I'm not trying to fit... Uh, music and lyrics to the range of a specific artist. In fact, one of the only times I actually wrote a song knowing who my 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 artist was was when I wrote Before the Parade Passes By for Carol Channing. Mm-hmm. We were in uh, 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 Detroit and we were performing. And so I knew her range and I wrote, before the parade passes by, right in the best notes that she has. It's a very small range, that song. And it made Carol sound wonderful. And, uh, but that's rare. I always write for character. And then we find an Angela Lansbury. I had no idea she was going to do MAME. And uh, 
or then I find a Robert Preston, you know. So then you've you've written the songs without knowing. Once the characters have been cast and we know who the people are going to be, do you ever go back and have to tinker a little bit and and adjust for those people? I did so much adjusting in Dolly because I kind of had Ethel Merman in my head. Mm Because David Merrick said we're going to we're going to go to Ethel. She, she was this. approached and she turned it down. She didn't want to hear it. Uh-huh. She didn't want to, to be in a dressing room anymore. She told us on the phone, and she said, "If I come and hear it, I might be frustrated. Mm-hmm. So please forgive me." And I had written these big Ethel Merman notes, you know. And so when when Carol was was given the the role, thank God, uh, because she became the legendary and and perfect Dolly Levi. I had to alter n- notes. The, her opening number had a, was very rangy. Uh, yeah, as written for Merman. As written for Merman. Uh-huh. So instead of, when a man with a timid tongue, I wrote, when a man with a timid tongue, and I kept it in one octave and one note. Mm. And... My my great gift really is making a, a, an artist feel comfortable and sound comfortable. We were we were talking about with Mac and Mabel the revisions to the book, but when you when you tell a story like that about changing the music to fit a performer once the performer is signed, do you ever have you ever had the temptation? to go back and restore your original musical impulses, which obviously were changed for either the talents or in some cases the limitations. Yes. I, um, I believe you have seen Mac and Mabel uh, at – so it's fresh yeah, in your speed, mind. Yes. The, the original song for the Keystone Cops was, Every time a cop falls down, my spirits soar. And it was like a soft shoe because we wanted to avoid having to do a real old-fashioned Keystone Cops uh, ballet. And when we uh, got close to New York, I think we were in Washington, I wrote a song called Hit Him on the Head, which is right on the nose uh, of uh, uh, how Keystone Cops really began screen violence without realizing it. <laughs> and a funny idea. Mm-hmm. And um, when when we were about to do the show uh, at uh, the Goodspeed, uh, the choreographer, Dan Serretta, asked if he could use Every Time a Cop Falls Down. And with great pleasure, I returned that to the score. So, yes, songs are interchangeable. If if they were written for a certain place in the show, they are interchangeable. Now, how about with Lacage, which is coming to Broadway um, later this month? I haven't changed a thing because... No, no new songs? No. No changes of any sort? No, no, no. Hmm. It's the Lacage that people know and... Well, I have to ask you, uh, I listened to a panel discussion that Harvey Firestein did um, a couple of weeks ago, and and he talked about, while not necessarily major rewrites or, or changes to the material, he certainly talked about that, that it could be the material could be approached in a different way now. And, and I think he even mentioned one or two jokes that he said he was able to restore because audiences wouldn't have stood for them 20 years ago. Yes, we, we, we've all uh, – we've both done tweaking on, on, 
uh, on the show because it is 22 years later. And I got a wonderful idea of adding uh, the uh, Georges, the father's comments, to the son's song when he sings with Anne on my arm. Uh, and I wrote some fun lyrics that I don't want to give away because oh, okay. I want you to hear them <laughs> in in context. <laughs> but that's tweaking. Uh, I didn't cut a song or add a new song because the score worked beautifully for me. And Harvey really didn't change basic uh, scenes. He just added some wonderful humor to it. And do you think that that show, shows – I'm not necessarily saying that shows are of their time, but do you think shows are received in different ways and can be approached as the times change? It's interesting when you talk about how dark Mac and Mabel was in the mid-'70s, a time when musicals were not noted for getting very dark. Um, certainly that changed over time. Clearly with a show like Lacage, we have to remember that, that it came out in 83. It certainly predated broad knowledge of – of gay life in America, certainly the AIDS crisis, um, the awareness of just the way gay culture has simply merged with with popular culture. Does the show feel differently now? It The show doesn't feel differently, but the perception of it will be different because we're used to will and grace. Mm-hmm. We're used to gay characters all over television. And this is not going to be that shocking show that it was in, in 83. Well, what was the reaction? For those for those who, who didn't know, was it indeed shocking? Were there limitations that were placed on you in doing no, the show? No, there were no limitations placed on us at all. I, however, thought that I had written a show with a very short shelf life because of the subject matter. I thought, well, this show can't play in certain foreign countries and it can't and I could not have been more wrong this show has played in every major city around the world including South American cities where you'd think well they they would walk out of this after the first 10 minutes just the opposite it's been embraced and that's because the original material the Jean Poiret play wonderfully adapted by Harvey Firestein, is really about love. And it's not about two men. It's about a family. One of them happens to be a man, which makes our show more interesting. But it's about, it's about a son who is not grateful enough to his, and in quotes, mother, who happens to be a man, uh, he's 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 unable to accept the fact that he that he is welcome at the son's wedding because of you know you know the story I don't have to go into the story of Lakaj and uh, today all that will be accepted with 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 no reservations so it's really more in the public uh, eye today than it was when we wrote it. Well, back in August of 1983 when the show opened, prior to the opening, what was the mood in the theater community in general about the concept of the show? In other words, was there trepidation? Did people feel this was a very risky show to put on because it hadn't been done? I think I was the only one who thought it was risky. Really? I remember the first performance we ever played. It was in uh, Boston at the wonderful Colonial Theater. And... uh, 
our director, Arthur Lawrence, and Harvey Firestein and I were sitting together in the last row of that theater. And this was our first flesh-and-blood audience. And I turned to both of them and I said, are we crazy? <laughs> we're opening a show about drag queens in Boston. Of all places. <laughs> of all places. What are we doing? And we all started nervously to giggle in the, in the last row. And about 15 minutes into the show, uh, oh, I must tell you that right in front of us, a typical back bay couple, she had sort of bluish hair mm -hmm. and he had a rep tie and a blazer mm -hmm. on. They, they were like from central casting, but they were for real. And they came and sat in front of us. And I knew in my heart that this was an acid test to see if this couple would get up and leave after the first number when they realized that, that, that there were men under those wigs or not. And they stayed, but they were not, they were not sure. You could tell there was a little trepidation. From the back they, of their heads you're getting this. I could, <laughs> I could see the profiles and the whole thing, and they sort of looked at each other uh, uh, with question. Like, is that really a man? <laughs> and then the real test came. The song, song on the sand, the ballad, that one man sings to another man at a cafe table in Saint-Tropez. Uh, just to remind you of it, it goes, I hear la-da-da-da-da-da-da as we walked on the sand. And it's about a couple who can't remember the song that they heard on a beach 20 years prior to this, but they remember the feeling of walking along a beach and hearing a melody in the background. And all they remember is la-da-da-da. And anyone who's ever been in love or who's ever walked along a beach with someone that they cared for, I think, responds to this song. And about two minutes into the song, the couple held hands and they put their heads together and involuntarily the three of us started to tear up because we knew that this show was being accepted as a love story. Hmm. And that's the real story of Lacage and, and why it has worked all over the globe. So then at intermission now, did you overhear this couple say anything to one well, another? Well, they, they, they were all excited, and they came back and gave the second act <laughs> such a rousing, you know, uh, uh, mm -hmm. support. And Boston just fell in love with Akash. We came to New York a hit because of, of the audience in Boston. You talk about the audience in Boston, and earlier you spoke about the work in Detroit on Dolly. You were working on shows where the out-of-town tryout was a fairly common experience when you were doing yes. a lot of your work. And I'm wondering how that helped shape the shows that you did and whether that's a process that you think I think really it's a, lost I think it's compared a wonderful to you know, these process. workshops. It's a wonderful process because it gives uh, a composer, a lyricist, a book writer, a director a chance – 
to see their work in front of an audience and then make changes. If, if you just open cold, if you open a new show cold in New York, it's very hard to do that. So the, the, the process is a good one. It's just so expensive these days. And, of course, with a revival like this, we saw no need because we knew we weren't changing material. Has there ever been an occasion where you learned something from an audience that, that made you want to remove something from a show? You talked about how affirming uh, the experience was with Lacage and this, oh, definitely. this, this focus I, group of two. I cut, I cut a few things from uh, Hello, Dolly. I cut a wonderful song called Penny in My Pocket that was sung by Horace Vandegelder about he, how he became Yonkers' best-known half-a-millionaire. <laughs> Funny song and, and uh, uh, done beautifully by David Burns and gorgeously staged by Gower Champion. But I learned that the audience didn't care about Horace at this crucial moment at near the end of Act they One. They were caring about Dolly, I presume. No, no, I'm not. I'm talking about before the parade passes by. Uh And uh, I knew that they didn't want to hear about Horace's experience, even though they enjoyed the number, but it wasn't what they were interested in. They had fallen in love with Carol Channing and the character. And so Mike Stewart and I devised a parade sequence, and, uh, and I went to work and wrote, I think maybe the best song in Hello Dolly before the parade passes by, and uh, and uh, when that went in in Washington, which was our next city, I felt the show was then in perfect shape because I'd, it had been lacking that powerful punch, uh, and where Dolly tells us that she's going to return to the human race. And then the Dolly number in Act 2 benefits from it because we see the result of her decision. You mentioned, we mentioned many times already, Michael Stewart, who you collaborated with several times. And you did two shows with Lawrence and Lee. And of course, we've mentioned Harvey and, and Lacage. What do you look for in those in those collaborators? What obviously drew you to Michael Stewart, um, and and what's what's the the ideal working relationship for you as a composer lyricist with a book writer? I've been very fortunate because along with Donna Pell, who wrote the book for Milk and Honey, I've had very collaborative and very sensitive book writers who understand Mike Stewart's greatest asset as a book writer, was that he understands that the book has to lead up to the high point of a scene and then the music has to take over. He had no ego about that. And he would always say to me, I'll write up to, to, to where, where she has to burst into song and then do what you, what, what you want. And understanding that is a great gift. Harvey understands that. I, uh, I, ha- I have a story to tell you about uh, the m- most important song in Lacage. It was a scene that Harvey brought in to our meetings at that time uh, uh, one morning, and it, 
it basically said, uh, I, I am what I am and there's nothing I can do about it. And it just went on. And he said, I, I, really, I really can't help who I am. This is Alban talking, you know. And, uh, and I, I heard that scene and I said, Harvey, if I can take five of your words out of that scene... I can write you the best act one closing that I, that I, I would ever know how to do. And he said, of course. Harvey, again, understands musical theater. So this is a way of answering your question of two minutes ago. I look for collaborators who understand the, the, the form and who understand the importance of singing in a, in a musical and uh, when Harvey said yes, I went home and I wrote, I am what I am. I am my own special creation. So come take a look. Give me the hook. Or the ovation It's my world And it goes on from there And he gets more and more involved in it It has three choruses that top each other And the way I wrote that song Is exactly the way you're going to hear it again With three choruses that get to, to this rhythm finally I am what I am And what I am Needs no excuse And it just is a roaring finale for Act One And it came from five words out of a scene So that collaboration between a, a book writer and a composer and a lyricist is the most invaluable thing that we have. Now, you are certainly known for big, rousing numbers like Hello, Dolly, and like Mame. And in Lacage, there's a big, rousing number that I can think of, The Best of Times. Oh, yeah. That's a wonderful song. Love that. How did that come to be? That came to be uh, because there's a book scene in the restaurant that, that they all go to uh, that they take the Dandones to, you know, the villains of the piece. <laughs> and the owner of the restaurant comes over to to Zaza, who's posing as the mother in this scene. It's a very funny scene. And says, Zaza, I, I'm, I beg you uh, to give us a, a little song, to sing a little song. And... Zaza's trying to hide beneath her mother's garb. And she says, oh, no, 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 I gave that up a long time ago. And she tries to get out of it. And she's badgered by Jacqueline, the owner of the restaurant. And she had to sing a simple song. It's one of the only songs I've ever written that really is not a book song. It was written to represent a song like the gang's all here, or a rowdy uh, song that could be sung in a, in, in a, in a bar or in a restaurant, and uh, that everybody would, wouldn't be able to know and sing along with. Uh, uh, for he's a jolly good fellow, mm -hmm. that's exactly good the kind of song I had to write. 
And so I found those notes. And an idea that the best of times is now. And that's all I needed. And I wrote that song in, in, in less than an hour. Hmm. And it, it just became a song that absolutely ran away with itself. I've not been to a wedding or a bar mitzvah since <laughs> the show opened where I didn't hear that song. It's one of those standards now and sounds like something we've always known. And that's exactly what I tried to write. Now, I, I would like to take a moment and play it from the original cast album back in 1983. Oh, I'd love I to hear that. Play that version. Then I want to ask you a question afterwards relating to what you just did and the song itself. Okay. okay. Okay, now that was from the original cast album of Lakaja Fall. So, Jerry, you sat here before I played that song, and you sang it yourself, you played it on the piano. In your head, you're hearing notes, you're hearing your voice and all that. What is it like when you now see it up on the stage with the full orchestrations, a full orchestra playing it, the orchestrator has gone to work on it, the cast is singing it, the conductor is conducting it, all of that. From when you sat at the piano and composed it to when it got up on stage, what kind of reaction do you have the first time you, you saw that performed? I use an entire box of Kleenex <laughs> at our orchestra run-throughs. There is nothing more exciting in the world than hearing your creation come to full-blown life like that song does on, on, on that stage with, with that gorgeous orchestration and with the, the, the singers that we now have in the new Lacage are so extraordinary that they blow me away. I sit in that, in that rehearsal studio. This is without sound and without all the, 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 uh, the trappings that are going to color it even more. And I get, I get my, my signal. My signal in this business is if the hair stands up on my arm. <laughs> I know that it's something extraordinary. That, that, and I feel that in the rehearsal hall. Mm. There's nothing more exciting than it all coming to life, being dressed by a, a costume designer like William Ivy Long and directed by a Jerry Zachs, who's just brilliant, brilliant, and was really born to, to, to direct this musical. And... Jerry Mitchell, our choreographer, uh, has done such extraordinary work. And so I'm seeing all this come together. Right now, as, as, as we talk, in fact, I'm going to go right from here back to rehearsal. <laughs> and uh, there's, there's nothing more satisfying. I can't explain how satisfying it is for me. Now, I'm, I'm not speaking of currently the revival of either Lacage or Mac and Mabel, but in general, over your, your career, have you ever had a song orchestrated by the orchestrator and then performed, and you sit there thinking in your own mind, that's not the way I heard it when I was writing it. I didn't Just once, mind. only Just once. It was the song Ribbons Down My Back mm, from song. Hello, Dolly. Uh -huh. And I thought the original orchestration was very weak and very unlike what I heard in my head. And all I had to do was go to our beloved Phil Lang, who did mm. all my great orchestrations. Uh, in those days and just tell him and, and play 
what I heard in my head, which was much more lush. And two days later, he did an orchestration that made me cry. So, yes, it happens, but it, it has happened very rarely in my life. And is that the reason that it doesn't happen? Is that because you and the orchestrators have similar mindsets? In other words, the orchestrator knows who you are. And- oh, yes. Uh, I sit with my orchestrators and go through every bar, and they know exactly what I'm looking for. And so it's doubly exciting to be able to uh, hear what I have had in my head for a year or two. I'm I'm sitting here sort of in amazement that I'm sitting in a room with Jerry Herman because like countless people, I've heard your shows. I will admit to having been in a community theater production of Maine, which I will <laughs> say no more about. I, You even made the comment about that you now go to weddings and bar mitzvahs and you hear your songs played. Does that continue to be? You talked about the thrill of hearing a full orchestration, but you you have become a standard. You you are one of the great composers of Broadway. How does? What's your perspective on that now? Did you you didn't know at the time that these were going to live no for for forty years? I really never knew that certain songs would have lives of their own. Let's take my most famous song, "Hello, Darling." It starts, hello, Harry. Harry was my father. Well, hello, Louie. Louie was my uncle. <laughs> it's so nice to be back home where I belong. Now, no one in their right mind would think that that was going to turn into a pop song until Louis Armstrong heard it. Some genius at my... Uh, uh, publishing company brought it to Louis Armstrong. He heard the the chorus answer when they sing "Hello, Dolly, Well, Hello," and he said, "I know how to do that as a jazz thing." Made that record, which is now world famous, and turned my 1890s Valentine into a classic jazz recording. Louis Armstrong did that. I didn't. And I had no idea that that song would, would, would be played all over the world because of Louis and, of course, because of Carol because it's a great moment in, the, in a show. It's one of the greatest production numbers ever to come out of a show. But Louis really, really put it over the top. We, we knocked the Beatles off the, the charts at one time. It was the biggest record of the year, oh, 1964. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So let me ask you, yeah. now from the perspective of being a writer of these classic musicals and recognized as such, what do you see on Broadway these days? What do you see in terms of craft? Whose work do you look at? Do you, do you go to a lot of... of oh, of I see. I try and see everything, of course. I have to know what's what's out there, and I love the theater. Uh, there are some who bemoan the state of what musical theater has become. I'm not sure that I agree with them, but I'm wondering you know, what your feelings are. Well, I think it's a secular thing. I think that 
that uh, there are lots of new writers out there who are enormously gifted and who have their own styles. And no, it's not the kind of musical theater that I grew up with or that I, I wrote. But I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that that's the natural evolution of, of, of a business. But the, the exciting part of it for me is that when a show of mine comes back, like Hello, Dolly! keeps coming back. It, we've had four of them on Broadway through the years. The audience reaction is so grateful and so full of love and so exciting that I realize that a simple, melodic, easy-to-remember song will always have a place on Broadway. It may not have the unending place that it had when I was starting to work. There were like 20 new musicals every year and certainly, you know, more songs going around for Edie Gourmet to sing or to, from, for uh, Frank Sinatra to sing. But I know that audiences love melody. And that's what I that's what I've tried to give them through the years. And uh, but the interesting thing is that an eclectic musical theater is what we have right now. We're going to have a Lacage on Broadway playing around the corner from a, St- a Stephen Sondheim brilliant piece called Pacific Overtures, playing uh, a, a few blocks away from Chicago. Which I don't have to. I don't have to tell you, you know, about Chicago mm-hmm. and and the great Candor and M, and they're all different styles, and that's very healthy. Then we have Dracula, the musical, very different kind of rock-oriented show music, and they all create what is called Broadway. And I I think you can't have one style of anything, and. Uh, I'm just very grateful that that I was around in those golden years when it was fashionable to write <laughs> melodic songs. Well, talking about style, your musicals have a certain Jerry Herman style to them, a lot of positive, upbeat, and that sort of thing. Is that Jerry Herman, the person, right? That's me, honestly. That's I, my glass has always been half full mm. and continues to be. And... Uh, if if I weren't a happy guy, I should be put away somewhere. I mean, here I have two of my favorite scores being played, one in Connecticut at the Goodspeed Opera and one coming to Broadway at the same time. And there isn't an, an evening where somewhere in the world a dolly isn't descending her staircase or a mame isn't descending hers. And it's... It's it's absolutely thrilling. I mean, I was a little kid from Jersey City who never dreamed past having one Broadway show. That was my great dream. And when Milk and Honey opened on Broadway in 1961, I thought I had I had done it and had it. And I had no idea that it would go on to be what my career has led me through. Well, you mentioned Dolly. Dolly herself, as in Carol Channing, you and she have been close friends for more oh, than four Oh, she's decades. like a sister to me. I have a quote that is attributed to Carol Channing saying, quote, 
He, meaning you, he grew up adoring this big, pizzazzy woman, your mother. Jerry always writes for wonderful big avalanches of women. Jerry never replaced his mother in his life. He's been writing for her ever since. That I true? think that's wonderful and t- very true. I can just picture Carol Channing's voice saying that. <laughs> but oh, I can too. <laughs> you can try to do it, Jerry, but we won't. Oh, no, 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 no. But that, that's true. It's very true. I had a great, glamorous mother. She looked like Barbara Stanwyck in, uh-huh. in, uh, uh, at that time. And she was a, a musician and a, a singer, and she had her own little radio show at that time on – do you remember WEVD? Sure. Absolutely, here in New York City. She had a, 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 a little show called Ruth Sachs Sings. And I, kept, I grew up in that house with, with a mother who would go to a studio and sing for 15 minutes and, and uh, uh, parents who loved the Broadway – theater musical experience and started to take me when I went, when I was old enough to go with him. And I read somewhere that you were about 14 or so that Ethel Merman was like a big influence. You I they took me to Annie Get Your Gun one it? night and had no idea what they were creating. <laughs> they were creating this mo- this show monster. And uh I thought that was so extraordinary to to hear Irving Berlin songs that I had never heard before and be able to come home and play them on my mother's piano and be in the presence of an Ethel Merman. I never dreamed that she would actually appear in a show of mine. Mm. And she, I guess, was the final dolly. She was the last dolly on Broadway. Did you have to address the show for her? Did you go back to the original What I did was I uh, added two songs that I had written for her originally that really weren't in Carol's range, and she was thrilled... To, to perform them. And I remember saying to her, you know, this song called World Take Me Back, which is one of the songs, really says the same basic thing that Before the Parade Passes By says. They're both, you know, uh, songs about taking a last chance and doing it. And she said, I don't care. I'll sing them both. <laughs> and that was Ethel. And she sang them both in the same production. And did she sing them the same way that Ethel Merman always sang her songs? Oh, God, yes. Very big. And the and, audience oh. went nuts. I was Merman after all. Yeah. Did you recall how the songs went? Oh, sure. One of them... Uh, uh, is the world is full of wonderful things, a bushel of wonderful things for me to believe in. So world, take me back. A real Merman song. And she she blew the walls out with that. And I put it in the first act. And then when it came time for Before the Parade Passes By, she sang that, and I don't have to tell you how that voice on that song uh, resonated through through that theater. And the audience didn't mind that they were hearing the same idea <laughs> twice. And then I wrote a ballad called Love Look in My Window, a lovely ballad for Ethel. And uh, we added that to the show. It was 10 minutes longer, but nobody cared. Basically. Nobody complained, no. especially the stagehands who probably went on to overtime at some point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jerry, I just read today that um, you're in the process of adapting the show that you wrote for television, Mrs. Santa Claus, for the stage. Yes. So we, we can look forward to 
a new Jerry Herman stage musical. Yes. What's what's the process going on there right now? The process is that Mark Saltzman, who wrote the uh, television script, it was a television special uh, for CBS, and uh, uh, the uh, script was written by Mark Saltzman. And when we were asked to do it as a stage musical, he had to adapt, you know, uh, 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 writing... Uh, the, the writing form of writing a television musical, which is in pieces, to a smooth uh, 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 book. And he just sent me his work, and it's lovely. It's lovely, and it's in, a, in classic musical comedy form now. And I added a song to it, and it's going to go all over the country as, uh, as a, 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 per, a perennial Christmas show. Well, is the idea simply to license the show out, or is there a goal to do a production or a, tu- uh, a sit-down production or a touring production of it? Or we, It's so early, we don't even know uh, whether there's going to be one specific performance of it or whether it's going to go to a lot of smaller theaters that uh, are hungry for material like that. And kind of on the same line, there's a, another show that doesn't really exist yet I want to ask you about because I've been playing songs from it for a year now. <laughs> and I said, if I ever run into Jerry Herman, I'm going to ask him the status of Miss Spectacular. First, Miss... first tell us what Miss Spectacular is or was going to be. I was commissioned by a man in Las Vegas to write a musical about Las Vegas and 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 f- specifically for Las Vegas. And it was a very appealing idea to me because I knew I could write an entertainment. And I wrote a show called Miss Spectacular. And as part of the process that we were going through, we decided to do a concept album before the show was ever done. And instead of it being uh, an original cast album, which of course it couldn't be at that time, we hired a different star to sing each number. So Michael Feinstein, uh, uh, Steve Lawrence, Faith Prince, Christine Baranski, Debbie Gravitt. It's just filled with wonderful, wonderful people. And they all sing one song. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was brilliantly orchestrated by Larry Blank, who's orchestrating new dance material for the new Lacage. And um, the album has gotten rave reviews, and and it's really become like a cult mm-hmm. uh, piece because there is no show at this point. Well, as I understand it, this man that commissioned it owned some hotels in Las Vegas, and the idea was to do a Broadway-type show, not on Broadway, but in Vegas. Exactly. And then he sold the hotels. He sold the hotels and my contract along with (laughs) with the sale. (laughs) So suddenly I found that somebody else owned my contract, and and that person very generously and kindly gave me back the the rights. And so uh, I have two wonderful producers – who who uh, are going to do it in Vegas. But, of course, it had to be tabled because I'm a little busy this year. <laughs> we only have two shows going on right now. So. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny because you do find things come in waves and suddenly it just seems like not, – not that there aren't some shows of yours that are always, as you say, perennials. They're always out there, but there does seem to be this swell. So I also have to ask about a couple of other of your shows which are lesser seen, Dear World – 
which uh, Goodspeed did on their second stage a yes. couple of years ago, and the Grand Tour, which I've not had the opportunity to see. I don't. I don't know if it's revived much. Are these shows that, as you've you've done now for a few years with with Mac and Mabel, are these shows that you want to revisit or think should be revisited? Uh, I have revisited Dear World with uh, again a new book, uh, and uh, it worked so beautifully at a good speed that it was immediately done at Sundance and uh, Robert Redford was just thrilled with with the production up there and uh, 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 our our uh, star up there was Maureen McGovern who was quite wonderful in the role and I think that Dear World is ready for uh, uh, a new a new look a new look at and what about the Grand Tour? The Grand Tour will probably be on my plate two years from now. <laughs> so you, you do see yourself do, going I, back to it. Yes, yes. I think they're all worth uh, a second look. I understand from reading some stuff that I Googled about you uh, on the Internet that you had another career at one point. You had bought a firehouse and you were starting to decorate old firehouses or something. What's that all about? Uh, I... <laughs> I bought a firehouse uh, on 10th Street in, Here in New York City, yeah. and that was my first home. And I... Uh, this was just after Dolly or during <coughs> the world? Hello, Dolly, was this? It was after Dolly. After Dolly. And uh, before I went into the business that I'm in, I was going to be an architect and designer. So, of course, I redid the house. Mm-hmm. And magazines came and published it, and it became a second career for me to buy a house, demolish what was there, and and uh, and and redo it. And uh, and up to now, I have done thirty three of those projects between shows. Most people don't know I do this. Now, that first house I read in, in the new biography of you, is that the house that you bought from Edward Albee? That's right. Which I find the idea of Jerry Herman re reimagining a house previously lived in by Edward Albee somehow to just be a fascinating idea. And, and and I, I wonder what you found there and, and what you did. Just but. a great house. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, Edward has exquisite taste. And he bought a beautiful uh, townhouse from Morris Evans, oh. the wonderful... Oh, so it's really got a theatrical it history. It has a real yeah. theatrical history. And uh, I had a wonderful time redoing it and then just continued doing that all over the country. I did nine uh, old uh, houses in Old Town, Key West, hmm. and actually had a little business down there where I would redo these houses for people. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't know that I do that, but the designer in me pops up. But you every, do it every year for yourself. So. You're not taking. Are people calling you and saying commissioning you to do in the design? Key West? Wow. Uh, I only did uh, two houses for myself, and uh, I did uh, seven others for other people. Hmm. Well, thankfully for the American theater <laughs> and play lovers and Broadway lovers everywhere, you decided not to become an architect and a designer. That's your avocation now. And your vocation of writing exactly. some wonderful music. They switched. Yeah. They switched. Jerry Herman, thank you so much for being with us today oh, on Downstage Center. It's my Center. great pleasure. Thank you, guys. It's been a real delight. 
I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, reminding everyone that you can visit our website, www.americantheaterwing.org, and listen to all of the Downstage Center interviews as free streaming audio, as well as other media productions of the American Theatre Wing. And I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.